Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And once more, hear the word of our great God. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Once more may the Lord bless us through his word this evening. Our interest these Lord's Day evenings is to see God's account of the church of Jesus Christ. And friend, as we come into this place, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, it's important for us to understand that God's account is not necessarily the account that is most popular. The remit of the church, its character, its definition, are things that are often discussed even by the world. All the world has an idea for what this institution should be. It should be a social organization that primarily looks to the betterment of man. And by the betterment of man, of course, they have in view there the idea that society and all of its temporal aspects were being helped. Man really is the focus of the church, according to most. In fact, if the church does not focus on man, according to the world, she doesn't have a right to exist. She's fanatical and she has no real, real use in the world that we live in. Oh, but friend, even, even among professing Christians, thinking about the church, oh, friend, there is so much confusion there as well. Oh, don't you see it? The church is primarily, it's primarily a social club. The church is primarily about getting together and, and primarily about, about helping oneself. It becomes a self-help organization, baptized in the name of Jesus, but still, no less, a self-help society. Oh, but friend, when you come to the scriptures, as we've seen these past several Lord's days, God's account of the church is so very different. When he thinks of the church of Jesus Christ, when he communicates his definition and the remit of this church, oh friend, the institution emerges as something that is dedicated solely to God. And yes, it does good for the people of God, but it is all erected for the glory of God. It's not an institution of brick and of mortar. It's an institution of lively stones. Lively stones that testify to this glorious grace. Lively stones that show the continued work of that glorious grace in conforming sinners to Christ. That, friend, according to the word of God, is the church. Its character and its end. And so, friends, we've looked at these ideas before. We've come to several propositions that we can't miss. The church, as we think about it, as visible Catholic is the household of God on earth. The field of wheat and of tares that Christ speaks of. 
It's comprised of all of those who profess faith. Who, who, as Paul speaks of the Corinthians, they profess their subjection to the gospel. This is that society. All who profess faith together with their children are made part of that house. A more perfect, or perhaps better put, a more mature house that was begun even in Abraham. Even in the Old Covenant. It's that commonwealth, that covenant commonwealth that the Lord has promised so much to. And is that body to which the external privileges, those outward privileges of the covenant of grace belong. That was our first study last two weeks now. Last week we saw that particular churches, such as Corinth and other national and regional churches, form a part of this visible Catholic church, as they are societies of professing believers that are gathered together to have the ordinances of Christ. Those things that the Lord has ordained for the good of His people and for the exaltation of His name. It's a society of people gathered together to observe those things. And they're gathered together because they long to have the presence of Christ in those things. And these local churches have been ordained by God, nationally and locally, to press the interests of Christ wherever they're to be found. Well, you see, friend, immediately we find ourselves in a very different idea of the church. We, we see a very different purpose of the church than what most have. Friend, you and I exist in a local body to press the interests, the cause of Christ in this place. That is the calling of the local particular church. Now, if that's what it is, if this is the institution, well, we have to ask the question then, what is its character? Are, there, are these particular churches even needful? And if so, what order has Christ established that his people might enjoy these ordinances? And that brings us then to our text this evening. I want you to notice, friend, that the Apostle is continuing, as we read uh, before we came to our text, in those thoughts about the church. The need for the church to grow more and more in the knowledge of Christ. That's the prayer that the Apostle prays in the third chapter. He's continuing that thought through the text that we're taking up this evening. And note what he begins with. In verse 11, the start of our text, he sets before us officers. Those who are officers or office holders in the church. And then, verses 12 and following, he sets before us the calling of these particular officers. And you can even subdivide that calling in two ways. You could say, first of all, in verses 12 and 13, you have their remit, their charge, followed by the effect. Uh, that's verses 14 to 16. The effect that these ministries are supposed to have. And I want you to notice, friend, that as you look at this text, verse 11 specifically, this has been given in the context to the church. It's been given to the church, not churches, in the plural. Uh, friend, you'll remember as you read through the Westminster Confession of Faith that the office of the ministry, as well as all the ordinances of Christ, belong to the Catholic visible church, even if a particular local church is required for them to be observed in an orderly way. The office here is given to the church as a whole, to the Catholic visible church. But as you look at this, friend, you'll notice a few things. First of all, he says about these officers, they have a particular calling. They have been called to their work for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, you have that word perfecting. 
And that word perfecting in the original could rightly be translated constitution. Constitution of the saints. Uh, And that, Calvin, I think, helpfully tells us that what we're supposed to see here is that the apostles are anticipating something. He's anticipating the objection. God might himself have performed this work if he had chosen. But he has committed it to the ministry of men. This is intended to anticipate an objection. The objection being, cannot the church be constituted and properly arranged without the instrumentality of men? Paul asserts that a ministry is required because such is the will of God. And then, friend, in this constitution you find that there are other things that flow from it. Again, verse 12, the edifying of the bodies, the language of construction. It's an analogy that's drawn from the building site. Through their ministries, they are to be building up this temple of lively stones. They are to be those who are ministering, that is, engaging in the work of service for the whole body. And then note the effects. First of all, we're told here that they are to be working till they come into the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man. Now in our translations, you might think that verse 12, the perfection there, is the same word that you have in verse 13. It's not. The word perfect in that text has all kinds of uses throughout the New Testament. But the most common is this, that of maturity, coming of age, coming to one's own right. Uh, Take, for instance, 1 Corinthians 14. The apostle there says, Be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice ye be children, but in understanding be men. That word there, men, is actually our word here translated perfect. You could say be perfect, or you could say in our text, be men. Verse uh, 14 of Hebrews 5 reads this, Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. The word full age, those words there, are actually reflecting back on the, uh, the Greek word that lies behind our text. The word here, perfect. The idea here is, is that through the ministry of these officers, Christ is going to be engaging in the work of maturing, growing his people. And we'll come back to that just for a moment, but it's important to understand in what sense or to what end this maturity takes place. And friend, this is staggering. Just look at the text with me once again. They are to be made perfect, again verse 13, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now friend, Those are not meaningless words. This is the word of God, infallible and inerrant. This is not poetry. This is not romanticism. These words have real meaning. And the sentence here, as you look at the words stature and fullness, make this even more profound. In John 9, 12, and also verse 23, the words stature and fullness come together to talk about one who has come of age. Hebrews 11, 11 It's used to describe one who is past age. The idea is is that in verse 15, the calling that those who are called to the ministry have is that they are to urge and work until all have been conformed. Note, Note, friend, the perfection there. All have been conformed to the image of Christ. That is their calling. And that also gives us the extent or the time of their calling. Until the time that the saints of God are fully conformed as redeemed sinners to the image of Christ. Christ has ordained that these ones will be working in the church. 
My friend, a few things that I want us to know here. First of all, in this text we're told that Christ orders that a particular church is constituted through a settled ministry. That's simple enough. But also, as we've just said, as we look at this text, it shows us that the officers of the church continue as long as Christians require maturation. As long as they are not fully conformed to the image of Christ, the Apostle says they are to continue in the church. Likewise, the growth of believers is expected under these ordinary means. The sense is, if you are part of this body and under these offices, the sense is you will be growing. The sense is you will be somebody who is maturing. And then, friend, this brings us back to a very basic idea. The New Testament account of the church, the body of Christ, is not purely structural. And it says we're not merely talking about the ministry itself, but neither is it purely, uh, for lack of a better term, organic. It's not purely this kind of amorphous body or society that has no structure or form. No, according to the scriptures, it is organic in the best sense of the word. Organic in the sense that it is a living body but possessed of organs within that body that, as structures, enable its life. That's the sense in which you could say that the New Testament church is organic. She is a living body. The analogy that the Apostle uses here is somebody who is coming of age, growing, as it were. And here the Apostle is saying that to facilitate that growth, to encourage it, Christ has established structures in the church. And friend, that brings us to our theme then this evening. That is that Christ has appointed offices and officers in the church for his people's growth. Christ has appointed offices and officers in the church for his people's growth. Now briefly, friend, I want us to look at this under three headings. I want us to look at the inception of this office, the institution, and finally the intention of these things. And first of all, the inception. As you look at Ephesians 4, we find ourselves in the midst of a broader context, of course. But we find ourselves in a very particular discussion about what Christ is doing as the ascended Christ. Look back just for a moment at verse 10. He that is descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. In other words, friend, when the apostle comes to discuss the church in our text, verses 11 and following, he is describing for us what the ascended Christ is doing. Now, beloved, that brings us to a number of crucial ideas that we can't miss. The Apostle assumes that the session of Christ, friend, is not inactive. Even in his ascended capacity, beloved, Christ is working for the good of his people. He is still working, even at the right hand of God the Father. And the Apostle says that part of his working here. Not just praying for his people, but he's actually establishing things concretely on the earth today for his people's good. Friend, if we miss that, we've missed so much. The church is not man's idea. And the church does not ride upon man's ability. The church is, as the structures are given to us here, constantly under the influence of an ascended Christ. Constantly under his care. We miss that, we miss all. But then, friend, I want you to notice this. Throughout the scriptures, we have this idea that Christ is actively doing these things. 
in an intimate way. I mean, as Christ commissions his preachers, what does he say? He says, he that heareth you, heareth me. Such that whenever the apostle comes to the issue in Romans 10, note what he says. He says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom, and our translations say, of whom they have not heard? The word of there is not in the original. It should read, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Note what the apostle is saying. In the hearing of preachers who are lawfully sent and truly sent by Christ. They do not hear merely the word of a man, but as the man preaches the truth of God, it is the Christ upon whom men are to believe. Friend, in the visible gathering, the scriptures tell us, especially in Matthew 18 with regard to the issue of discipline, what does Christ say? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst, am I in the midst of them? Friend, note what he says there. Though it's, of course, tied particularly to discipline, it also extends to any of the formal institutions of the church. Christ promises that he will be present in their administration. Present in their assemblies. Our Christ is not aloof, friend. Our Christ is not an idea. But he is a present and he is a personal and he is an active Christ, according to the Apostle. And that's so even in the church. I mean, friend, when you come to the end of Matthew's Gospel and you have the what we call the Great Commission, note what he says to those whom he has commissioned as his officers. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you. All of these things are to be done by those who are ordained, called by Christ. But friend, they're going out as sheep among wolves. They're going out into a world that hates Christ. And Christ has promised it will hate them for His sake. But then He supplies this. For lo, I am with you all the way. Even unto the end of the world. Amen. That's their encouragement, but friend, I also want you to note this. Why is He with them? Why is He with those whom He has called to function in this way? Our text, Ephesians 4, tells us very plainly, it is for the sake of the body. It's not for the apostles' sake that they had this promise only. And it isn't as an extension to the ordinary officers of the church that we can take this either. It's not for their sakes that Christ says this only. It is for the sake of the body. Christ has been as promised that those whom he has truly called, beloved, for the sake of the church, he'll be present with them. Friend, our Christ is not distant. The scripture teaches us that our Christ is quite present in his church, quite intimately acting in it. And that's really the inception of this office, these offices that we're thinking of this evening. It is, a, it is from a Christ who is present, who is active. And that means then that Christ provides, if you will, the blueprint, the materials, and even does the building itself of his church. All of these things flow from Christ. It's not of man's institution. All of these things bear witness to the continued activity of Christ. Beloved, that means then from Scripture promise, in a true particular church of Christ, without presumption, just taking God's word as it stands before us, we may humbly expect the presence of Christ in particular churches. 
If they are truly particular churches of Jesus Christ, these promises are applicable and also incite our expectation. But that brings us to our second heading this evening, and that is, what is the institution here? If you look at verse 11 again, if the inception is from Christ, the institution is variegated. You have here the, the words, he's given apostles and prophets and evangelists. Now friend, in this list, of course, we are thinking of extraordinary officers in the church. Officers that are of not of standing use, not of standing ordination in the church. Officers that served a particular time and purpose. As we saw even actually two weeks ago now, the apostles had a very particular function. They were laying a foundation with that of the prophets. They were used by God in a very particular and extraordinary time for a very particular and extraordinary purpose. And so extraordinary offices have been given to the church that would only last for a time. But then as you note this list, it's a striking thing. In this list, the apostle also includes and some pastors and teachers, which we understand to be the ordinary offices of the church that are of continued use and continued standing in the body of Christ. These, he says, all of these have come from the Lord. Now, friend, as we look at this text, then we're supposed to be mindful of what the calling of this office is. You see, these offices, these ordinary offices stand till when? Note again our text. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Till we are all matured. Till we have all come to perfection. Beloved, as far as the ordinary offices of the church are concerned, that is when they can stop. That's when they can cease. And not a moment before. Not a moment before. And why is that? Because these offices have been given by a living and an active Christ for the care of the church. I mean, friend, I want you to notice how the scriptures speak of this. They speak, of course, first of all, of elders being ordained in every city. Not by apostles only, but even by Titus. And that not only are apostles ordaining men, but even presbyteries are ordaining men in 1 Timothy 4.14. But even though these bodies are ordaining men, note how the apostle refers to them. In Acts 20.28, he says this to the Ephesian elders, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. And what is their calling? First of all, they come from, he says, the Holy Ghost. Their ordination is from the Spirit of God. Even though it is through ordinary means and ordinary instruments. But what's their remit? What's their calling? Oh friend, it's just this. Feed the church of God. Feed the church of God. In other words, friend, the calling that we have here is one of extreme service. It's one of the highest stakes and of the holiest instruments. And one of the most incredible ends. It is to feed the people of God for whom Christ died, says the Apostle in Acts 20, 28. That's their calling. These officers stand in the church continually. And their calling is just to do this. To feed the flock of God. To care for the church for whom Christ died. What does that look like? I think, friend, this is a fair point that we need to take, especially as we look to October time. 
What does this really look like in practice? I want to take you to a text that perhaps you wouldn't go to immediately to answer that question. I want you to know what the Apostle says to the church at Corinth here. I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children, and I will gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Friend, that is the institution of Christ. That is what those who stand in the church's officers are called to. Not to seek the things that they might gain from the church, but the people of God themselves. To seek their good to the point where you could say they are spending and being spent for their sake. Why? Because, friend, their whole calling is devoted to the church of Christ to build her up in the ministry that we see in our own text. Beloved, that means then that the calling that the Apostle here describes for us in the 11th verse and following is a solemn one. Those who are filling this office, friend, they stand very much like a friend of the bridegroom who has been left in charge with the bridegroom's home for a time. They are to be caretakers because they will, and they will answer to the Lord for how they've managed themselves and the calling to which Christ has laid to their hand. It's a holy and a solemn thing. Oh, it may not seem like much to the world, but hear the apostle, hear the testimony of Scripture. Friend, it's, it's a very solemn thing. But it's solemn, beloved, because it reminds us that these things have not been instituted for the men themselves. This is not, of course, supposed to puff up the men who hold office. This is actually supposed to stand for us as a continued testimony of Christ's care for his own and his love. Beloved, as you find these kinds of men in the church, you're not supposed to look at them with admiration. You're supposed to see that they are simply instruments through which Christ is continuing to manifest his love to you. That's all. Beloved, it's not that they might have a name. It's just that the people of God might know that through their instrumentality, he continues to do his people good. He continues to love his own and continues to minister to them now for their good. But lastly, as we close, that third point in the intention. What is the intention of the office? And you might say, well, we've really already discussed this. Well, friend, I want you to notice that the intention here is really twofold. As we have it in our text, there is an emphasis on knowledge. Uh, you note that. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I'm thinking of the 13th verse there. In verse 14 he speaks about the need for not being tossed by every wind of doctrine. That being something that the ministry is to safeguard. And so friend, there is this primacy placed upon the knowledge of the people of God. And why is that? Well friend, as Christ prays in John 17... He prays, sanctify them through thy truth. The building up of the people of God is never, is never divorced from the truth of God. This idea that we can somehow eliminate doctrine and just be pious people is entirely unknown to the New Testament. Doctrine according to Christ is the very means through which the people of God will be sanctified. 
And so the, the apostle obviously then calls them to unity in these truths. And so, friend, when he comes to a church that has attained to these truths, note what he says. Philippians 3.16, Whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. He, lay, he writes before that, Stand fast in one spirit with one mind together for the faith of the gospel. Be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. The apostle sees that the church of necessity must be concerned with knowledge and doctrine. Beloved, it must be that way. If the church ceases to set forward the truth of Christ, friend, you can expect no good from her. If Christ prays that it is through the truth that his people will be sanctified, friend, a church that does not prize, that does not prize the truth of Christ will certainly languish. And so the apostle says part of the work of the ministry is to build up this unity. But I want you to notice, secondly, that this is also, of course, leading us to devotion to piety. One can be, says Peter, barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, friend, it's necessary that the people of God are growing up really into Christ's likeness. Really, not just in knowledge, but actually in their own hearts. And so, friend, I want you to note this. There are certain aspects that apply both to the preacher and to those who hear him. To the preacher, the apostle says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Know what the apostle says, If I have the knowledge, great knowledge of the truths of God, but I don't have this love, I'm useless. What does Christ say through John about all the people of God? If a man say, I love God, which means then he has some knowledge of him, and hated his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And he seconds really this idea with a very basic proposition. Everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. You see, friend, this whole text is telling us that it is through the truth of Christ that the people of God are going to live as long as they hold this truth in righteousness and truly without hypocrisy, they will grow more and more in love. Beloved, as you look at this text, we, we can't miss the idea that the calling of the church, the remit of the church, is to be those who grow up into Christ's likeness, in knowledge and in love. That's the intention for which Christ has given us these structures in his church. That's the end. As we close, friend, I want you to notice just this. That it is through a right hold on the truth of Christ that the church becomes more and more lively and more and more fruitful. It is through these structures that Christ has ordained that you are to expect growth ordinarily. And you see, beloved, that tells us two things. First of all, it tells us we cannot be a people who are only knowledgeable. Because we show that our knowledge is only surface level if we are not also being conformed to Christ's likeness in love. We are then defined as those whom Peter describes, as those who are barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. We ought to prize the truth of Christ, but we ought to recognize we do not hold it right unless it produces Christ's likeness in us. 
But the other point we can't miss either. Beloved, it is because of our hold upon Christ and His truth that the people of God will grow in love. It's not either or, but it's one through the other that you and I are to expect edification in the church. It's in that way, friend, that the church can be considered organic. And so, beloved, as we close, just a few thoughts. Growth in the church is tied in this text to the structures ordained by Christ. It's not that the church is the structures, and it's not that the church is simply growing without any connection whatsoever to institutions. It's both. It is through the institutions of Christ's appointment that the church will ordinarily be edified. And so, friend, that leads us to a question. Is this why we are here? Is this why we are part of this particular church? Are we here because, friend, we acknowledge our need to grow? Are we longing to be under the ordinances of Christ because we know our weakness? If that's the case, friend, then we are a people that must become more and more humble, conscious of impotence and conscious of the continued need for Christ's support and help. Likewise, friend, as this is not a social club, friend, it's, and the, the truth of God is called to be uplifted by the church. Are we a people who are here for the honor of God, for the glory of God? Are we here for His sake? Yes, acknowledging our need, but also acknowledging that our God is worthy of all adoration and praise. And we long to be built up more into the image of Christ for His glory, for His sake. Is that why we're here? Is that why we're part of a particular church? And finally, friend, are we part of a particular church in love? Love for the truth, and that love for the truth flowing in love for one another. These are necessary considerations for us, beloved, arising directly from our own text. Is this why we're here? If it is, friend, if we are those who stand in the Lord Jesus Christ, this text holds out to us that wonderful reality. That presently, presently, Christ is caring for his people. You need not go far if you can find a church and a ministry and ordinances that are purely observed to find the handiwork of Christ, to find manifest tokens of the continued love of Christ. Beloved, if you have faithful, if you have faithful office bearers, if you have those who will minister to you Christ in love, then friend, prize that, but not them. Prize that because that is an instrument through which Christ continues to love you, or manifest his love to you. But lastly, beloved, we are to be looking, even this text tells us, through the means to Christ himself. We are to come together as a particular body. Why? Not simply because we have some penchant for religiosity. Friend, we are part of a body because we long for Christ. We long for Him, the Christ of the means, not just the means themselves. And so come to Christ, who offers you even here. Come to Christ, as He offers continued care and protection here. Don't come to men or to a ministry. Don't come to a group of people simply because you like them or they're nice. Come because you want Christ. 
Because, oh, beloved, as you find these things in the church, a particular body, the scriptures teach us that there Christ is in the midst, doing good for his people, even today. And so, friend, the particular church is the establishment of Christ, not of the world or the Christians themselves, and it's established for his sake to continue his redemptive work, the building up of his people, the saving of unworthy sinners. Amen. Oh,